0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900
1: CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson.
0: It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right. uh it's been it's been a bizarre couple of days and it, it, it's been fascinating watching uh, the federal liberals as they tank in the polls uh, uh, kind of regroup and have a, a a cheerleading session and then it's bah, 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 and say basically the same things and wonder why everybody's not as excited as they are at least. You know, as far as moving their heads in unison, as they all seem to do. But I digress. And we remember at the end of the caucus meeting in London uh, last week where they announced that they were going to uh, uh, give a rebate on the GST for new ha- uh, new home construction of rental units um and again throwing this out today like it's the beginning of a new day and um and the the grass has just been cut and let's see what happens but again this was an old promise from back in 2015 that they didn't keep and something that both opposition parties and home builders have been talking about for a for a long time and that's the uh, uh the cut in the GST to rental housing so and then the other thing was they were going to summons the the, the grocery store CEOs which I don't know. Maybe they don't think that we remember or or maybe or we're not paying attention. We're going to bring all these CEOs of the grocery stores in and we're going to tell them, you know, we're going to we're going to some of the uh, we'll shame them in public if we have to. I'm writing down some of these quotes. Uh, We're starting to do our homework. We'll be we'll start doing our homework here. I mean, my goodness, this is just the beginning. Where the hell have they been? And and I'm sorry, but you might remember six months ago they did all of this. And remember they it in all of the CEOs and they all made them sit there and, and listen and get, you know, it's like sitting in the front of the class and, you know, having a detention, staring at everybody else looking at you. So they've done all of this. So I'm not sure why they are doing it all again, other than the thinking of they just keep saying the same things over and over again, that somehow it will be different. Uh, Canada's top grocery executives have pledged to support the Liberal government's effort to keep prices in check, Industry Minister uh, Champagne said. So, uh, okay. The heads of the Canada's biggest grocery chains attended the summit struck by the Liberals in Ottawa on Monday on Parliament Hill returns uh, and the government vowed action on affordabil- uh, on affordabish- affordability issues dodging Canadians. He told reporters before question period Monday afternoon that it is a historic day to have the heads of Canada's biggest groceries in one place. Well no, it was you did it 6 months ago. It's the same thing. No, that was a different, you no no, 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 no. Two hour meeting, Ottawa and the executives had, quote, difficult discussions, but a constructive tone, whatever that means. The large grocers have accepted to work. With the government of Canada, the minister said, as opposed to not. We're not working with you, the government of Canada, where our bread, and but- our bread is buttered. Like, are you kidding me? This is a step in the right direction. This is just the beginning. We're going to be working to bring price stability in Canada. Uh, the prime minister, uh, again, summered all of these people in and wants a plan to address food inflation before Thanksgiving. Otherwise, tax measures would be on the table. So that's it. You lower your prices or we're going to tax you. How do you think that's going to fare for you and me? The government did not provide details of what formal plans, if any, came out of this meeting on Monday. So, you know, uh, one is the GST promise, which, again, was an election promise they broke back in 2015. It's something both uh, opposition leaders have been screaming about and the Home Builders Association. So now they're doing that as if, you know, uh, imagine if they'd done that in 2015 where we'd be. So that plus this, it's, it's just its two new things that are just rewrapped old presents from days gone by. Here's what the housing minister, Fraser had to say about uh, the work that has to be done. Listen to this
2: change the financial equation that's going to get builders building more quickly. You see the nature of the challenge that people are facing when it comes to home building today has been exacerbated by a changing landscape over the last couple of years, but more specifically in the last number of months. As we've seen the cost of inflation impact supplies and materials, as well as the cost of labor, at the same time that builders are looking at higher interest rates than they had grown accustomed to leading up to and during the pandemic, you see that those projects have been put on pause. There are hundreds of thousands of projects across Canada in a similar position. If we actually change the equation by putting new incentives on the table, a lot of those marginal projects will be put forward again.
0: What the hell does that mean? That's like talking about healthcare before and after the pandemic. Because the housing shortage was there long before the pandemic. And yes, now it has been exacerbated by all of those things that he said. But that doesn't change the fact that If you don't do something and you let it fester for years and years and years, all of a sudden there's a turn in the economy, there's a global pandemic, there's this, there's that. Yeah, guess what? It's going to get better. But to sit there and say, well, here's the problem now. Well, no, the problem was you didn't build enough houses years ago and you still don't have enough houses and now interest rates are going up. We got supply chain issues. We got whatever, whatever, whatever post-pandemic world. And that's all they do is focus on that. And it's like, no, you didn't build enough. And now you're changing your tune and trying to get everybody to buy in. Because forever, the left is all been, has been all about the environment. And, the, and saving the environment does not mean building. And now we're stuck where we are. And all of those on the left are saying, well, geez, we got to get going. Yeah, look over here. And and criticizing those that are actually trying to get the job done. Self-inflicted wound. All right. you might remember uh, I was uh, whining and complaining about uh, a, a situation that I had encountered in the LCBO and we've talked about this before and I'm up and I'm making a purchase a couple of weeks ago and it was on a Thursday night it was really busy and uh, a lady came up beside me in, to the counter next door and and she had two young girls I'd say six and eight-ish so there's probably a you know middle-aged woman maybe in her 30s 40s whatever and the girl picked up the wine box of wine and sat it on the counter counter. counter. And immediately the gentleman behind the counter said, is that alcohol for you? Well, of course it's not. It's like a six or eight year old. And I was sort of paying attention because it was, but I wasn't, it was right at the time where I was paying and stuff. So uh, anyway, so this all goes, goes on and you know where I'm going with this long story short, uh, no sale for you you're gone, and the lady had to leave the lineup, and everybody says, oh, I can't believe that just happened, you know, and I, I, I felt so bad about it, because I was sort of in the middle of doing what I was doing, and only paying half attention, that I didn't say something, that I didn't offer to pay for her stuff, that I didn't offer to, I don't know, just do something to stop the embarrassment that was going on, and we know the rules, and we know you can. the kids aren't allowed to touch it, uh, but this isn't a law, this is a policy, and oddly enough, I ended up writing a little note about it and posting it on a local uh, neighborhood Facebook thing. And I got a lot of response from people saying, you know, you really should tell the manager. So I gave the manager a copy of the letter uh, this past week when I went in and she was incredibly apologetic, of course, explained the rules. I said, I don't need to know that. I, I know the rules. I know what the thing is, but this was way over the top. And, and she was very apologetic and, 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 and flabbergasted by the whole situation and promised to take it up the chain and whether it does, who cares? Uh, uh, you know, at least I felt that I at least, uh, you know, had done something. And oddly enough, I then go into the beer store and I, or, or I went to the beer store prior and I said, do you guys do this? And they said, no, like, of course they check for ID. And if they think that you're underage, they're going to they're not sell it to you and question you and all that stuff. But there was no handling policy. So like if my kid came in and threw a case of beer on the thing for me, it, like, yeah, no problem. You're carrying that for your dad as these two young girls were. And this woman was just brutally humiliated by all this. And it was so uncalled for. And a stupid rule, which really, how come the beer store doesn't abide by, yet the LCBO does? Let's bring in Dan Malik, health sciences professor at Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, The Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Um, Yeah, thanks. Hi, Scott. I am well. I hope you are as well. Yeah, you know, what are your thoughts on this story? I'm sure you've heard it a million times. I think I've talked to you about this. Uh, but the latest scenario, I, I just thought it was way over the top. And how come one does it, but the other doesn't? Yeah, yeah, it
3: is a really funny thing. I mean, when in preparation for this, I was just looking at how often this hits the news. And it seems to be like this strange policy where, not this strange policy, it makes sense if you think about the LCBO as a control organization, which is right there in its title, Um but it does seem over the top, right? Like, so we see the LCBO as a place to buy liquor, but its mandate is to control access to liquor. So they have rules like that. But it is, and so that's probably why the LCBO enforces them. And often it's kind of a, to a ridiculous extreme, as you described. I mean, there's there's this idea that, you know, if you're buying something and it looks like you might be buying it for a, someone underage, they can deny you. But then when it gets – and that's why I think when that guy said, are you buying this for you, like that was kind of –
0: Silly. Yeah, it was insulting. And here's the other thing, Dan. I mean, all we hear about whenever anybody talks about getting this out of the LCBO into other options, yeah. oh, no, our staff are trained professionals. We know how to do this. Well, yeah. you can't exactly what you just said. You can't tell the difference between, you know, a teenager buying booze for another underage teenager as opposed to a young kid helping his, his parent or her parent. I mean, like that's night and day.
3: Yeah, it does get into this notion of the, um, like where how they how they enforce rules that that need to be enforced in some kind of uniform way, right? So if uh, I I think of those pictures they have or they used to have on the doors where they're showing a person of an uncertain age, are they eighteen? Yeah. Are they twenty-one? And they have to make a judgment call, and they're explaining that you know we have to make a, a call, and we're gonna. You know, if you if you look underage, we're not going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out if you're underage, except to look at your card, right, and and that sort of thing. Um, And I think it's the same kind of thing. Like they have to enforce this, or they feel they have to enforce this more strictly to show that they're doing that control job. What's interesting to me is the other side, which you, which I've also read about and heard about as well, is the the liquor the beer store doesn't feel it needs to do this, and yet Exactly. exactly. And And yet, if either of these um businesses were concerned about being perceived as being too loose, you'd think it would be a company that is owned and run by the actual breweries, right because they you'd think they'd be more concerned yeah, yeah. about the optics of selling beer under age, but they're just it's a more pragmatic thing you know people are buying beer, and maybe it's because beer is generally lower. In alcohol, then wine and spirits, and those sorts of things, which which could be the, the rationale, but I think it's more just a business decision um, based upon their perception of the public's perception of of what they do. It's certainly not law; it's just no. store policy. Yeah, yeah, and and these policies about not touching. I mean, the the policy I think is handling. Right. So if a kid reaches out and touches a bottle of wine in your basket or something, that would not be considered handling. And so what that kid was doing was putting the box up on the um, thing or whatever could be considered handling. But then there's got to be in any situation where there's law or regulations, there's that wiggle room around the judgment call of the person enforcing or what we sometimes call the street level bureaucrat, the person who at the moment of interaction has to go okay, I'm not going to enforce that law. It could have been that that staff member was new or that yeah. they were just sort of, it was a busy day. All of those things come into it, but really it comes down to, really, d- d- did you seriously believe this was a mother <laughs> buying booze for her six-year-old? And yeah. if that mom takes that six-year-old home, if that you don't really have any say over what that, that mom's doing anyway, right? So there's that whole... It, it really is about the optics, I think, and about the the, the public perception, and and then well, the overreach. It, it,
0: it's their presumption that everybody's doing bad things, and is it, who made the cashier judge and jury? I mean, yeah. sell the product if the person's within age, if it's within the rules. Again, to me, the fact Dan we're even talking about this is yeah. silly, and that's yeah. why the beer store doesn't do it. It's yeah. just it's yeah. silly. Yeah, and
3: the other side of this, or and another dimension of this, is if you have a rule like that. What's the penalty? And the only penalty the LCBO I think
0: can they don't have serve you not selling, yeah yeah they just kick you out of the store yeah. and you go yeah. across the road to another store and do it and do the same <laughs> yeah. thing
3: yeah or to the grocery store or whatever right yeah like, yeah it is a, it's, so it's this weird thing that you have this rule but if you don't have a a reasonable enforcement mechanism it makes the rule look completely ridiculous uh, I mean yeah. sure there's talk about you know. Uh, even, like I was reading up on, you know, a while ago where, say, a taxi driver coming in and buying booze and then there's a kid outside in the taxi getting the booze, that would be a problematic thing. But now when we have all of these online apps that we can buy booze through, even that sort of level of control is disappearing, right? That layer of Good point like, seeing
0: the person yeah. purchasing it is disappearing. Dan Malik with us, health sciences professor at Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario, talking about the LCBO and the beer store, all trying to save our lives but doing it from different ways. Uh, Dan, thanks for the time as always. Be well. My pleasure. You, you as well, Scott. Take care. So many things to talk to, uh, to talk to Dr. Ian Lee about, associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Let's bring him in. Ian, hope you're doing well. Thanks for the time. Yes,
1: my pleasure. Thank you.
0: All right. First of all, Ian, the whole grocery store thing, um, uh, the the, the innovation minister is making like this some sort of groundbreaking meeting going on. Did we not do this six months ago? What's different now?
1: Uh, Nothing. This is political demagoguery. Um, It's political demagoguery because, well, it's one of two things. Either they really are financially illiterate, that is to say, not knowing that grocery... Have uh, are notoriously one of the lowest profit margin industries in Canada for all my adult life. I've been teaching this industry and using it in my strategy class, both US and Canadian grocery retailing, for literally 35 years, and it's notoriously low profit margin. So they're saying things that are just nonsense, that they're, you know, that they're extraordinarily high profit or a very high profit industry. And and secondly, they're they're suggesting that you can you can um, uh, fix wages or excuse me fix prices in this industry a form of let's call it price controls uh, by pushing them or squeezing them or threatening them and, and that is equally as nonsensical because this industry like any industry buys its inputs from other industries and and meaning by that they buy oil and gas you know diesel for the trucks and for the for the tractors and so forth Okay. And, uh, and so, you know, you have to, you, you, they're, they're just refusing to acknowledge the, the interconnectivity of all of the industries. You can't have selective price controls in one industry only. And so this is being done for, I think, by Mr. Trudeau, because he's down in the polls. He's very, very frightened. And and so they're trying to send a message to everybody that they are, quote, doing something.
0: So how do the CEOs respond to this, try to play along and not inflame the situation in any way, but basically said, well, you know, all the answers to these questions you're
1: asking us. Well, they're going to, I think they're going to have to stand their ground. Now, they're going to have to do it very carefully because otherwise the liberals and, and probably their partner will demagogue and try and beat them up, you know, their profit gouging and on the backs of the poor and that sort of thing. I think that they have to, the answer is, and by the way, I'm sure there's some people listening saying, yeah, that Ian Lee is probably consulting to this industry. I consult to nobody. Carleton University pays my salary and they certainly don't tell me what to say. Believe me, OK, I have studied this industry. I've used it. It is a notoriously low profit margin industry they've got to stand up the industry and, and speak truth to power. They've got to put the data out there to the media showing that that they're 70 percent, approximately 70 percent of their uh, in- uh, costs are from the from the food producers, the Maple Leaf Foods and companies like that. And I'm not pointing the finger and blaming them either. I'm uh, what I'm suggesting is that because of inflation, it's feeding all the way through the food chain from all the way upstream, all the way downstream. And this has been documented. I mean, (laughs) there's been all kinds of people who have studied this who have shown that, not to mention the Competition Bureau, who simply called on more competition. They didn't find any evidence of price gouging. So I I think it's because the issue is so sensitive to so many people, understandably so, that they that they are trying to show the, the government of the day. Our government is, is standing up and saying, we're going to stand up to those profit gougers, even though they're not profit gouging. One more quick point, Scott. I testified in March of this year before the House of Commons Agriculture Committee. I produced the data from Stats Canada showing that their net profit margin hadn't increased. And the MPs got very angry. So a couple of them said, stop lecturing us. And I said, I'm not lecturing you. I'm just presenting data, evidence-based data from StatsCan. And that wasn't the answer that they wanted from me. They wanted me to, I I guess, feed them propaganda. But I won't testify and feed propaganda if the StatsCan data shows that the long-term net profit margin, which is how you measure profits, is around 3, 3.1, 3.2. Nobody is going to who understands arithmetic will argue that 3.2 is a very large amount uh profit margin it's a very low profit margin industry that's just the nature of the, the of the grocery retailing it's been ever thus
0: so, uh, the meeting with them again, as if this is something new, will he at least bring up the idea that there could be more players introduced? Is that something, or well, even offer them sorry, some sorry, sort they've, of?
1: They've already threatened taxes, and you know it just shows how foolish. I mean, just, <laughs> yeah. just, it's just, it's crazy because they themselves, the government, our government, the liberal government. Introduced a carbon tax several years ago, and they said this is going to increase prices because taxes do that, and that's going to cause us to switch from fossil fuel uh, cars or fossil fuels to non-fossil fuels, to to, to renewables. So they know that when you impose a price on something, it makes the price go up. Now they're saying if they don't reduce the prices, we're going to put a tax on agricultural products, which will make the prices go up. But they're, they're claiming to do this to make the prices go down. They're either deeply, deeply confused and they don't even understand the logic that they're saying. Or alternatively, I think they're demagoguing on this to try to show that we're standing up to those those greedy, you know, grocery store CEOs. Um, Does this
0: not just when you're having these meetings and you're having discussing these issues, does this not just even put more focus on the carbon tax? Because I'm guessing one of the things that the grocer CEOs will say is transportation and the cost of fuel and how that plays a role in all of this.
1: It does. It does. And I'm not trying to suggest that it's the it's the sole contributor to inflation. Not at all. There are multiple contributors, as we know, the war in Ukraine uh, and g- yeah. fossil fuel prices going up, uh, uh, oil. Um, but tax and- is something
0: you can control.
1: Right, and taxes. So that's a contributing factor. But there are, I mean, there. Uh, what I'm saying is, uh, and again, I'm not trying to suggest that, you know, it's the fault of the carbon tax for uh, food inflation. It is a, certainly is a contributing factor along with other factors. And the other thing I want to put out there and I know that there are economists that disagree and that's fine, but um, Milton Friedman won a Nobel prize for this at the University of Chicago. We pumped enormous amount of stimulus into the system um, in the three years of the pandemic. And I'm talking both unbelievably low interest rates, which was monetary stimulus, as well as the fiscal stimulus that the PBO said was two thirds of a trillion dollars. And that pumped all kinds of liquidity in the system. So we had too much money chasing too few goods. And that is the recipe of the definition of inflation. So, uh, the, you know, the government contributed to the problem. I'm not trying to say they caused it, but they yeah. certainly made the problem worse.
0: What will come of this meeting with the CEOs? What, is something going to change by Thanksgiving?
1: Uh, no, no, because these uh, root, these are deep-rooted. Uh, the structural forces at work are deep-rooted. I mean, what, what will come of the meeting is I'm sure the Mr. Minister Champagne will, uh, will come out and declare victory and say, I. Force them to, you know, promise to do da, 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 whatever they promised, look into it, you know, work harder, that sort of thing. So they'll come up with some kind of a, <laughs> um, a claimed uh, 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 solution. It won't solve the problem because of the, as I said, these underlying uh, drivers. Uh, just a quick metric so everybody understands this. Uh, and this is from Natural Resources Canada. Uh, in the ag sector, which is only 2% of GDP, it consumes 10% of the totality of all the energy in this country, which just staggers me. 2% of GDP, a tiny little sector of GDP consumes 10% of all the energy because food production is incredibly energy intensive. I know that because I was raised on a farm in Eastern Ontario a long time ago, but they use a lot of energy, tractors and trucks and so forth. And so again my my point is is that these 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 drivers of inflation are not going to go away by october they're not going to go away tomorrow morning presto abracadabra you know and uh, so they they're looking for i think window dressing that will um, allow them to claim that they're on top of the problem and they're going to solve the problem and it's going to work its way out Over the next two, three years in food inflation, I mean, because the overall inflation is coming down. We see even food prices coming down somewhat, but it's not going to be solved in 30 days or 60 days or 90 days.
0: Dr. Ian Lee with us, associate professor, Sprout School of Business, Carleton University, talking about uh, the minister meeting with CEOs of big grocers uh, as they did uh, six months ago. to See if we can get some sort of relief. Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. A lot has changed uh, just in the last uh, week or so after a London convention – caucus meetings, rather – of uh, of the Liberal Party, federal Liberal Liberal Party, and and sort of a repositioning, well, a huge one eighty on on a lot of things, including two big issues which came out, which is the GST, uh, removing the GST from uh, construction projects involving rental housing, uh, something that uh, the Liberals was uh, going to promise or promise back in twenty fifteen. and both opposition parties are in agreement too, so um, you know, sort of a, a retread there. And this morning, uh, with the innovation meeting with the CEOs of grocery chains, again, something that had happened six months ago for the same sort of discussion, and that was runaway grocery prices. Um, repositioning or repainting, is it going to be enough? Are Canadians asking why now? Let's bring in Wayne Petrosi, Professor Emeritus, Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, and here now. Wayne, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
4: I am, thank you. I
0: hope you are too. So far so good Wayne. How do you think Canadians are responding to this information?
4: Well, you know, it, what what seems to be we, the case is that we we can't lose sight of is just how quickly the the issue landscape changes and how short uh, uh, how Canadians don't have much of a memory anymore. You know, we 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 collectively in terms of politics we all seem to have some kind of uh, uh, ADD. In what respect? It's it's remarkable how quickly and how uh, that alliances and loyalties and, and, and favorability ratings can change. We live now and, you know, we used to talk about the 24 news hour cycle, you know, and we used to, you know, politicians used to be able to safely you know, release an issue you didn't want to really talk about, or an out—you know—on a Friday afternoon after the press had gone home, and you know you were pretty good till till Monday, and by which time people would see it as yesterday's news. Uh, now that the speed with which issues take shape and dominate, because of social media, because there is far, far, far fewer Canadians who consider themselves a member of one party or another. You have tremendous movement in public opinion from issue to issue, from month to month.
5: Uh, at the
0: end of the day, is it reality versus perception? I mean, this is all hitting home. Many have said, I heard somebody say a week or two ago, you know, uh, housing is going to be the hot button issue of the fall. I would suggest this is going to be a hot button issue for the next several years because it's a, it's an issue that took several years to get into and it's going to take several years to to get out of. Um, is it that they're falling in a favor, in and out of favor or the, the crisis du Or is it that reality's hit home and this isn't working for them anymore?
5: You know,
4: Scott, I think you're right in making the point of the difference between perception and reality. And and I think increasingly, and we see this in the United States even more so, uh, how people feel about an issue and a situation seems to matter more than the actual situation. So notwithstanding the fact that, for example, just uh, to give you a, a current example, uh, Americans are are really concerned about gas prices right now and saying the gas prices are out of control, et cetera, et cetera. Gas price today is what it was around 10 years ago. 10 years ago in the United States, the average hourly wage was 19 an hour. Now it's 29 an hour. So why would I get so agitated about the price being uh, the same as it was ten years ago, and my income, uh, hourly income, has has, has increased by fifty percent, uh, or seventy percent. And so I, I think it's how people perceive things. Scott, you're onto something, and and politicians uh, have to be more and more aware that people's feelings about an issue may trump any objective facts you present them about that issue.
0: I don't think it's what they're feeling. I don't think it's what team and you you brought that point up about people aren't don't have the the political loyalty anymore because now the rubber's hitting the road and they want results. And you know, and, and you know, for example, the Liberal Party is talking about, well, they're not they're not doing a good enough job of communicating what they're doing. And it's like, well, I don't know. You got one of the best communicating leaders in, in a long time. It's not that. It's the message. And and you know, the same in regard to Um, you know, they they haven't spent enough time attacking the opposition. Well, I don't think that's what people want to hear. I don't think that's the message. I think the message is this is affecting people on a day-to-day basis, and the government seems to be out of touch with that.
4: Well, you know, that may very well be true today. My point simply is, and four months from now, it's hard to know what it will be. I mean, ask yourself this question. I'll bet you, you a hundred. I'll bet you. I'll, I'll, bet you I'll, I'll bet you.
0: I'll bet you a hundred bucks, Wayne, that housing is still an issue. Uh, however, many months from now, six months. Like honestly, yeah. I, this is not going away. It, the it, question isn't
4: whether housing is an issue. The question is how one goes about articulating what exactly the issue of housing is and how to resolve it. We can we can talk about runaway housing prices. But keep in mind for the 65% of Canadians who own homes already, a concerted attack on the cost of housing has a rather negative effect on them when it's time for them to put their their home on the market. Uh, It's how we go about addressing it, how we articulate the precise features of the problem with respect to housing, I think, I think this
0: is I think this is a very unifying issue, Wayne. I don't think this is a divisive issue. I think this is a very unifying issue, and I think that's why the government of the day is having a problem with it. Wayne Petrosi with us Professor Emeritus, Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University. Wayne, thank you so much for the time. Be well.
4: You too, thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll
3: delve into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. A 25-year-old CSIS memo has come to light, and should this surprise anybody, Uh, bringing with it a warning about Beijing's potential to be an intelligence threat? Moving forward, uh, Gordon Holden is with us, Director Emeritus of the China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, and here now. Gordon, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thank you, Scott. So, Gordon, anything new here at the end of the day? Oh, look, another memo that everybody seems to have ignored, and now we're wondering why.
5: Well, I'd say yes and no. I, mean, I think that, the, um, uh, quite frankly, the um, involvement of China and the Chinese Canadian diaspora. It goes back far further than that. In fact, I happen to know that it began even before we established relations in 1970, when there was a rivalry between Taiwan and between Taipei and Beijing over who would be, in effect, uh, the focus of of um, of China uh, of Chinese interests in Canada. Uh, it's um, not surprising. Uh, it's been there in the background for decades. It's come to the fore now because of the Controversies, most recent ones, over political interference, uh, which may or may not have been more egregious. But Chinese sub-ROSA involvement, particularly in the diaspora community, uh, is is not new. It is has been an ongoing issue, problem for Canada and other countries, but frankly, particularly those that have a large diaspora community of Chinese.
0: Uh, uh, does this get us any closer to a, a foreign intelligence registry or any of that chatter?
5: Well, I find it hard to believe that, given that the even the government, with a lot of prodding, mind you, is saying that they are contemplating this or, or planning this, etc., uh, although with, and it's taking a very long time. My own estimate, though, is that, yes, that is needed. Other countries like Australia, UK, and Britain have done this. Um, but it won't, in and of itself, solve the problem. That's the, the above the surface manifestation. And it's true, there will be consequences for those who, presumably, there'll be consequences, serious ones, legal ones, for those who um, don't declare and then seek to influence events. But there's others. One problem is that the perpetrators may be within Chinese missions or Russian missions or whatever, and they they have immunity. We can expel them, but we can't prosecute them. And secondly, with the growth of international growth of social media, uh, internet connections, you can do a lot of of indirect influencing um, from the confines of your own national territory. So, um, some of these operations, um, cyber operations, influence operations, may not have a single Canadian in Canada. So, the registry won't solve that problem. It's a tool, but it's not a magic tool that will solve the overall issue.
0: Uh, I have to ask you, uh, the Prime Minister saying intelligence today shows that India was behind the June slaying of a Sikh leader in Surrey, British Columbia. Uh, There's been chatter of that for a while. Now the Prime Minister has come out and said this. How how does this fit into this picture?
5: Well, it's a reminder that China is not the only country at issue. And quite frankly, if this is true, and I have no reason to doubt the professionals in our intelligence community, whom I have hold in high high regard, uh, this goes far beyond, um, to my knowledge, anything that China has done. I mean, can there be anything more extraordinary? Mm. It's a bit like the Khashoggi, uh, the Saudi um, mm. reaching out and and murdering a um, uh, a journalist in, in in Turkey. This is extraordinary. It um, um, will require. I know that the diplomat I, I read has been expelled. It won't end there. Um, I think it explains a lot of the background between the very um, low-key and not very warm cool reception that the prime minister had in, in New Delhi. But I saw that and, and agreed and was happy that the opposition leaders pitched in immediately. This is utterly, un, utterly unacceptable. And again, goes beyond the nefarious things that China has done. In terms of interference, the actual murder of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil—that's um, um, it demands uh, retaliation. I will just comment, though. We have this new Indo-China, Indo-Pacific strategy, which was rolled out last year, and now we have a situation where we have dodgy relations with China. Now we're going to have dodgy relations with with uh, India. That's almost half the world's population, forty percent mm. of the world's population, roughly between those two countries. So. Um, an even higher percentage of the population within, um, within Asia. So uh, we may have our strategies, and it's a good thing. I approve of them. But the reality is this is a very dangerous world, and some very big actors with, who aren't always doing the right thing, uh, in the case of both China and India now, uh, it's going to make a very challenging diplomatic economic role for Canada in that region.
0: Uh, We you're referring to uh, the prime minister and his reception in India in India and that obviously there there was friction between the two leaders. What is their friction about? Why is one upset with the other? Uh, Where do we stand? Where do we stand on this?
5: A very good point. And uh, of course, there's always going to be a range of issues, trade issues, etc. But there's one neuralgic question that keeps arising, and that is. That there is a um, some almost eight hundred thousand, I believe, Canadians who are of not of just of Indian origin, but are of Sikh origin, who come from uh, that that region of 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 um, of India, and not all, but many have a strong desire for there to be an independent state in India, Khalistan. My own view is, well will leave that to the Indians to decide. But the reality is, they are entitled as Canadians to have their own political views as long as they do not engage in violence or in political interference in effect in india and there have been cases where that has that has been a case particularly with the bombing of an area india plane in the past so it's complicated it's not all good on one side bad on the other but as long as we have that almost million Sikhs in canada who have um, their own views about their their homeland and who differ from that of government of india it's going to be a background issue i had one friend who's a former high commissioner to india said gordon um it's a difficult path i won't give you the name it's a very difficult path going forward we're never going to be able to get out of this issue of the majority of canadians of sikh origin um have a big issue with india and the treatment of of sikhs in india and uh, we as canadians with with uh, such a large numbers it's going to be a burn under the saddle of Canada-India relations going forward. thats long before this current story. That comment was made a couple of years ago. Uh, but it's it's not going to disappear.
6: On the other hand,
5: look at it another way. Imagine that we had, for example, a group of, of uh, people of Quebec origin who are living in a European country who were constantly militating for the independence of Quebec. That would be an issue for us as well. But it's when it strays into violence on, by either side, mm. to me it becomes utterly unacceptable and needs to be dealt with.
0: Uh, it'll be fascinating to see where this goes moving forward and how it adds to the discussion. Gordon Holden with us, Director Emeritus, China Institute Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta. Lots on the docket today. Gordon, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
5: Thank you, Charlotte Scott. The same to you and your listeners.
0: A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, uh, the Liberal government is not providing a timeline for a new registry that would require foreign agents to disclose their activities in Canada. As the House of Commons returns from its summer hiatus, uh, obviously uh, last year, and uh, we were talking about influence by the Chinese Communist Party uh, the last two federal elections, and uh, you know, at least wanting to have some sort of of uh, uh, of knowledge of who is who is involved in this and what they are doing and who they are working for and such. Uh, Duff Conacher is here, co-founder of Democracy Watch and here now. Duff, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
7: Yes, I hope you are as well.
0: Uh, Not a lot of time left here, Duff, but what are your thoughts on uh, the Liberal government not providing a timeline for a new registry, uh, especially as things are starting to heat up? Now the government seems to be, uh, uh, I guess, distracted with the housing crisis. Um, Are are you confident? How do Canadians feel confident going into another election that we've got a handle on this?
7: Oh, I don't think we should um, feel confident because uh, the government's been moving so slowly on the Foreign Agent Registry, and any other measures to stop foreign interference. Uh, The the public inquiry that's finally been called, that report on policy changes and law changes won't come until December 2024, and that leaves little time to pass a bill before the next election. Uh, And already we have loopholes in uh, lobbying law that allow for secret unethical lobbying, and most of the proposals about the Foreign Agent Registry would contain those same loopholes. The biggest one being you wouldn't have to register as a foreign agent unless you were paid to be trying to influence governments here in Canada. So all you do is have a contract that pays you to do other things and you do the uh, in- interference mm. and influence for free. And then you wouldn't have to register in the registry. So what stands out for you as is, is, is the top couple of
0: things that have to be done before Canadians can feel secure going into another election?
7: Well, the foreign agent registry, uh, but it has to be that uh, if you have any arrangement or are paid or compensated in any way directly or indirectly by a foreign government or foreign entity uh, to be involved in Canada in public relations and communications or any political activities aimed at influencing politicians, not just lobbying. So uh, it, it has to be um, that uh, you can't be escaping it by saying, I'll do the influence work for free and you pay me for something else. If if your contract includes trying to influence in any way, it has to be covered and you have to be in the registry. Um, There are huge loopholes in the lobbying lobbyist code that MPs and the Commissioner of Lobbying have just added that will essentially make secret interference in elections and activities to influence federal MPs easier for China and other foreign governments, so those loopholes that have just been added just came into force uh, in July 1st. Those loopholes have to be closed, and uh, we have too high donation and spending limits. It's pretty easy to funnel money through our political finance system and hide the actual source of uh, funds that are spent and, and donated, and and so uh, it, it's actually legal for lobbyists and lobby groups to collude during nomination races for election candidates and also political party leadership race can uh contestants can collude with third parties so all these huge loopholes that make uh foreign interference by federal by foreign governments and entities legal under our system currently so close all those loopholes that's number 1 and then all these legal things these legal ways of interfering in our politics will finally be made illegal and then we need enforcement strengthened a lot because uh, just making something illegal doesn't stop it. You need to have really strong enforcement.
0: Duff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch and coordinator for Democracy Watch, talking about what needs to be done before the next election so Canadians feel secure that there isn't any interference. Duff, thanks as always. Much appreciated.
7: Be well. Thank you. Take care. Hopefully we'll see action soon.
6: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson.
2: On Hamilton's News, today's talk 900 CHML. All of them are directed to specific solutions, and some of them weren't necessarily packaged recently over the summer when there's been a newfound interest amongst wide swaths of Canadians in seeing rapid action on housing. You're going to see more from us that continue to incentivize changes here, whether it's growing the workforce, whether it's changing the equation, whether it's supporting low income housing for Canadians, or whether it's helping keep people in the market. What I see with the Conservative plan is a handful of ideas that look frankly like they've been pulled off Google after a five minute piece of research, thrown at the wall to see what sticks rather than concrete solutions to very real problems. Wow, that's
0: amazing. What an about-face for the federal government. A newfound interest in housing, says Minister Fraser, the housing minister. I think a newfound interest. No, no, I think this is a newfound interest for the federal liberals. I think this has been on Canadians' minds for an awfully long time. We've had experts on this show and academics for years talking about how we have too many people and not enough housing. Uh, and and again, um, a self-inflicted wound. So now everything is completely changed, uh, and, and a new, uh, uh, I guess, position for the liberals on this, offering, uh, offering uh, a rebate of the GST of new rental construction, which is something the opposition have, have been calling for, and the building industry and such. So does this change things? Does it? Does it? Uh, does it uh, change the direction of where we're going? Does it speed it up? Let's bring in Maddie Cimit uh, director of the infrastructure institute and professor of geography and planning university of toronto and with us now maddie thank you for the time i hope you're well
8: yeah thanks for having me so we know
0: that this was a promise that was made by the federal government back in 2015 a hypothetical here maddie and you know there is no right answer but if this was to have been implemented eight years ago would would we see a difference
8: right now so the big uh, the big thing about the GST waiver which is now announced that's going to be matched by the provincial government on the PST is that it'll help uh, projects that are marginal get over the hurdle line in terms of their uh, financial viability. So as interest rates have gone up, as construction costs have gone up, a lot of projects that are right on the financial border uh, are not being built because developers are pulling back because of risk and uncertainty uh, and the market uh, wobble as well. So uh, by making by taking off some of these taxes, it makes projects that were marginal uh, a little bit more uh, financially viable. and. Uh, Ideally, we'll start to see more projects being built. But uh, and so uh, the best time to have done this would have been earlier. Uh, We're here now and we're really uh, we seem to be in panic and scramble mode trying to play catch up uh, as the prices have skyrocketed, And and really, uh, the country has become seized with a housing affordability crisis.
0: Uh, Is this a good idea? It seems everybody, uh, housing people, whatever, that this seems to be a good start, a good first step.
8: Is that accurate, Matty? I would say a good first step. I would really like to see uh, provisions to focus on affordability, that yes, we're going to help uh, projects uh, get built, but uh, adding rental housing that is at the average market rent even, which is, I think, around $2,400 per month in some markets uh, for a one-bedroom, and it goes up from there, many of the units that are going to be built are still going to be very expensive and likely out of reach and it, for many people, and it will take a long time for a huge amount of additional supply to come online uh, before prices uh, ever become more affordable. So we we need this type of program. We also need uh, deeply targeted programs that target getting affordable units built Uh, that really that uh, people all across the income spectrum uh, can afford
0: to live in. Uh, We've heard that, and and I've talked about this because it's kind of a red herring, the whole issue about affordable, because what is affordable? um, You know, you can build a thousand square foot home and make 20 of them, but if there's thousands of people showing up to purchase them, it it is no longer affordable, no matter how modest the furnishings are inside the home. Will we, or, or how do we address the affordability issue before we've, replenish the supply, which will obviously, supply and demand, uh, help affordability?
8: So we absolutely need to be adding supply. I think at this point, everyone uh, agrees on that. I would say we also need targeted programs, uh, co-ops, land trusts, in some cases, public housing uh, being built. We need all sorts of different models that take housing out of the speculative market uh, and make them affordable in perpetuity. These are some of the programs, but we are also going to need the private sector. private sector has built the vast majority of housing in our cities and in our country uh, in the last number of decades. And so there is definitely, there needs to be a huge role for the private sector and making it more affordable, focusing on uh, the workforce as well to make sure that there are actually uh, the people to build these houses uh, and homes, making sure uh, uh, that, that there's financing available. All of these programs are going to be critical uh, if we're ever going to play catch up. We are so far behind right now Uh, that we need literally 3.5 million homes by uh, 2030 is, is the target that's being set. We haven't built anywhere close to that on an annual basis. Uh, in recent years, when you
0: talk about affordable, Matty, does that mean those on the lower end of the income scale, or is that? It, it, can you talk about affordable housing and the middle class in the same sentence? Or when we're talking about a middle uh, affordability, is it is it about um, you know public housing or housing with incentive or, or or government assistance attached to it? Does that address the middle class or just those on the lower end of the spectrum?
8: They're connected, but what we're actually experiencing is two separate but uh, related housing crises. One for people on the lower end of the income spectrum or people with no incomes, uh, and we're seeing the devastating impact in those cases. And then in other cases, we're seeing people, whether they're students or new arrivals to Canada uh, or people who have just entered the job market, uh, who just can't get into the housing market, whether it's for rentals uh, or for ownership, just because the prices have skyrocketed so much. And so we need to be uh, targeting programs for both of those uh, uh, demographics because both are struggling. And that's been how uh, pervasive this housing crisis has become. It's really metastasized from uh, something that was primarily for people with low incomes. Now it's impacting uh, people with middle class incomes. And I think that's why you're hearing so much interest and so much focus on this now, uh, because people are themselves being priced out. uh, And if it's not them, it's their children or their colleagues or their uh, co-workers or family. Uh, they're just seeing it all throughout uh, society, and it's 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 becoming just a, an issue that can no longer be avoided.
0: Uh, we're admitting now, finally, that this is a self-inflicted wound. If you don't build enough, there's going to be a shortage, and that has caught up to us. What have we learned here, Maddie? Um, building was a bad word for the longest time. Now, all of a sudden, everyone's talking about it. What have we learned here? What's changed?
8: Uh, Well, the urgency of the crisis has forced us, the housing crisis has forced us to reevaluate some of the truths we held, especially around uh, neighborhoods and freezing neighborhoods in time and holding them as single family uh, neighborhoods in zoning, that some of the zoning policies that we held up as being pro-community actually uh, uh, were anti-housing and and posed real challenges and contributed to housing prices uh, skyrocketing. Uh, I think that's one. I think another area is emphasizing who's doing the building, uh, that we need to make sure that that we have the public, the private and the nonprofit sectors all uh, doing uh, construction uh, and getting in uh, to build much more housing and housing at all different segments of of the income spectrum. Uh, So that's another one. And I would say the third one is that one uh, the third lesson we've learned is we do not need to be building on the green belt that is not going to solve this problem. That is actually going to make it worse. Uh, it's hugely expensive to service those lands and in many cases they can't be built on quickly. We're going to be That being said, months.
0: Maddie, that being uh, said, Maddie, it's a self-inflicted wound. If we had built on the other land that's 20 to 40 years availability, we wouldn't be nibbling into the green belt And in 20 to 40 years, that land's going to be even more valuable now. So this discussion is not ending. It will go on for decades.
8: No, you're exactly right. And we need to be building in our existing built-up areas. We need to be intensifying gently uh, within uh, our existing neighborhoods and on larger sites, whether they're publicly owned or whether they're shopping mall and plaza sites or other privately owned brownfield sites. We could be vastly intensifying those, building tens of thousands, even millions of housing units across our cities, across the province, uh, and across the country. And really, uh, building uh, complete communities and not necessarily having to sprawl out into our uh, green area. That being said, Maddie I've talked to a ton of
0: academics who've said there is nowhere near enough housing just concentrating on infield alone, but we got to leave it there. Maddie Ciematiki with us, Director of the Infrastructure Institute and Professor of Geography, Planning, University of Toronto on Housing. Today was the uh, first uh, official day of the new parliamentary season as all parties were back and in fine form uh, filled with P&V and and uh, saving the world, so to speak. Let's bring in jean uh, yves Talier, professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa, and is here now. jean yves thanks so much for the time. Hope you're well.
6: I will. Thank
0: you very much, Scott. So your take, jean yves I'm dying to know. Obviously, uh, Liberal uh, Caucus meetings last week and a whole new approach to housing and affordability. It's like it's a completely different party now. Uh, talking about the GST rebate on rental properties, uh, construction. That was an old 2015 uh, promise that, uh, that fell by the wayside. Opposition parties have been uh, begging for this sort of thing. Uh, are people going to buy into this new Liberal Party that all of a sudden now cares about this stuff?
6: Oh, uh, not not with what they have offered until now. I think uh, people will want more. Uh, it may be a good uh, step in the right direction, but uh, they are much more reactive than proactive until now. So what they are doing is what everybody is asking. Uh, and it could be seen as the minimum. And so uh, what was announced uh, last week about the GST, or even the meeting with the the, the big grocery uh, businesses uh, today—that uh, won't change thing in a few weeks for for most people. Uh, we'll see in the long run, and I think it's not enough to 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 solve all the issues. So, I'm I'm pretty sure that most Canadians uh, want more. Um, What was offered uh, today in the chamber that was interesting is that we saw many ministers take turn to answer the question of the opposition. And uh, my sense was that uh, the Liberals want to give the impression or send a message that there is a good team with good people in place and they will eventually offer uh, sound policy. And so that's the start of, I think, many announcements that will be made in the coming weeks uh, from the Liberals.
0: I find it interesting to listen to the language now. Um, we, we played a clip of the housing minister a little earlier. He, They had a news conference prior to uh, the, the House sitting again, and he said uh, there's a newfound interest in building, which does that – connect with Canadians? Because anybody knows who's been following the housing situation, (laughs) this has been going on for an awfully long time. And it makes it sound as if this is a short-term problem for them, that once they get over this hurdle, they'll be fine. But I would suggest this is going to be around for a long time.
6: Yes, it will. And it's not by, for instance, blaming others about the the problem, the issue that you're going to Push go forward. So I, I'm making reference to uh, last week when the, the the federal government was blaming the provincial governments all over the country, the municipalities, and saying, mm-hmm. "Well, three are slow to start," and and that kind of thing. And and, and we know that for many years. And uh, the liberal gov- the federal government, is also slow to act. And and also the numbers and and the needs are staggering. I mean, uh, I think we heard last week was 1.5 million units that needed to to be. Uh, uh, to be to be built for the 10 next years that's a lot and so yes it's not by minimizing or 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 sending the messages that oh of course in a few weeks or months it's going to be solved and we know where we're going i think that it's uh, we need a deeper um, i'm not sure conversation but deeper engagement from any government in the country, and and a new policy about housing, because the impression I have currently is that we have to speed the the construction, the building of new houses, the new apartments, but how will that be done? And we will have a legacy for many decades, so are we taking the right decision? I'm not sure about that. So it's a a very current issue that needs a solution built on the long term, and that's the main issue for the government is managing all that.
0: Uh, I'm going to make a really broad statement, jean uh, yves And and again, this is just my 60 years on the planet. It, it seems that the environmental movement, those on the extreme left, have really, really, really tried to stall development of any kind. It, it, and we've seen that in the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Whereas the conservatives, they'll build on the head of a pin. They'll build anywhere. They'll build anything. Um, how does the left now justify that they have to find a common ground here that they have to come both sides to the center and get this issue resolved
6: my short answer is high rise and so i think i think that we have a new kind of housing that's going to have to be put in place and this uh this is not in the you know the conservative the right is about everybody has having his house his his lot uh is is in the suburb with his garage and his car and that kind of thing Uh, and i've and i think that now for most people this is probably not a future that's going to be attainable um and it's and the, the solution is building more, more dense um, area in more dense area in in big cities, and I think that way it's the way that probably the left enters into the conversation, and and it's part of the picture, and so uh, everybody agrees on building more, but building more what? Uh, it's more apartments. It's not the standard, the classic house that you use you, you, our parents and us have and so uh i think that's one way of reconciling both sides and it's going to be difficult also for the conservatives to 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 get that message out because it's kind of new of, to hear them about densification uh building near a train station or subway stations uh and so that that, that for me it's a novelty something that i have not heard re- here In the past, So that's why I say that. At the end of
0: the day, at the end of the day, John B it's really a combination of the two. I mean, I've had many academics on that say, you know, you can densify all you want. That is a one spoke in the wheel that eventually we have to build smart neighborhoods out as well. But I don't want to debate that too much. Let's talk about the CEOs and the grocery heads all coming in and and making it sound as if, you know, we're going to we're going to make demand that they do something or we're going to tax them, which many are thinking, well, I'm going to end up paying that um it, it seemed we just did this John Viev like six months ago and called all of these people in and did so what's different now than six months ago when we did all of this
6: uh, for the first time, I heard the Minister uh, Champagne and also a member from the NDP saying, well, we have a competition act that doesn't work very well, and maybe we should change it. And so we, it seems that we want to go one step further and to put more rules in place to avoid merger and to um, to, to to foster uh, competition. And that could be interesting by changing the competition act. It has not been changed for a decade, and so maybe that's the time to do so now. Now, again, like with housing, it won't, we won't see a quick change and that's that will not bring down the price of goods. Uh, so I don't know really what the government could do. Um, and and it's more manifestation of saying, uh, by convoking those those CEOs, but it's more sending a message to Canadians that, yes, we share your concern and we want to do something, but what exactly, uh, we're not sure. And so, uh, again, um, it may be one step in the right direction, but with no immediate tangible result, that's for sure. Um, and also how Canadians will will um, will interpret that 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 strategy and, and what they will make up uh, out of that.
0: jean Tellier with us, Professor, Political Studies, University of Ottawa, first day in the House for the parties all back for the fall se- uh, session. jean thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I see you've got uh, Ted McMeekin, and counselor coming on, former housing minister in the mm. Kathleen Wynne government. Um, I find it interesting to listen to him and talk about this issue as if it's a brand new problem. As if it never existed before the pandemic. As if we couldn't see any of this coming. Uh, it's like the housing minister saying earlier. We played a clip. There's a newfound interest in building. No, I think it's always been there. It's just the left doesn't want to build because it's against the environment and it's 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 not it's not sound for the environment. I was just talking to Jean-Béaute from uh, Ottawa, professor, and it's like she said, "Well, you got to build more apartments." Well. I think that's density's one spoke in this wheel, but I've had many academics saying that is nowhere near enough, and you've got to add to the outside as well. So uh, it's going to be fascinating to see where that conversation goes with you guys uh, tonight and what have you. But I, I find it very frustrating to listen to the people who helped contribute to this problem now try to position themselves around a solution.
9: Well, we're actually, so it's funny, we're not actually going to be talking about that tonight. We're going to be talking about his, about a number of things, but one of them is um, his motion that he's going to be bringing forward to cap municipal tax increases in the city at 4%. And I've already had a number of people say, well, still 4% is still too high. When you're going after a fort when you're looking at a 14% I'll take four, I mean, let's, let's pick our battles here. Um, you know, four is a whole lot better than 14. Here's the problem. I don't know what kind of support he's going to get. I don't know if he'll find enough votes around the table and if he does, Scott, what happens? And we're going to talk about this because that will mean that essentially they would have to shave 10% almost off what they have already locked into, what they've already said they're going to do and want to do. And I don't know where, uh, I don't even know what those kind of budget deli- deliberations will look like because so you're going to have some really, angry is this, people.
0: Is this really about results or just getting in the media so we can talk about it?
9: No, I, 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 I believe that the intent is there to make this happen. Uh, my question is like everything else in politics is that who is going to, th- oh, let, me t- let me put it this way. I think this vote, regardless of how it goes, is going to be one of the best and most important and most illustrating and illuminating votes we've had on this council yet. Cause I'll tell you why you have a, you it's very clear it's cut and dried here. We are going to be able to look at the votes in this and see which counselors truly are interested in looking after the budgets and the taxpayers monies and which ones say, screw that I'm spending. This is the, deepest, clearest line in the sand. And if you're a counselor who says I'm voting against this, what you're saying is I can't, re- I can't limit my spending to double what the last council and most of the last, Oh, well, in the last 10 years, I can't limit my spending to double what they spent. I still need more. That is, I'm telling you, it's going to be a very clear, very illustrative look at who is who on this council And I think this is one of the votes. I know we're only one year into this term, not even yet. This is one of those votes, I think, that is going to be something people remember even three years from now when they go to the polls. Who was interested in saving money for people and who was interested in spending their money? What
0: does it say about our council if it's this councillor that is the voice of reason and the voice of fiscal restraint?
9: I uh, so I think there are others who are the voice of fiscal restraint. I think, I mean, six of them voted against the budget that was the 5.8% increase this year. Um, uh, this is the one that's bringing this motion forward. No one else has brought this motion forward, but I do believe there are those who do want to show fiscal restraint. Here's the problem. All, like always with a city council, majority wins. And, you know, that's the way it should be. That's a democracy. Majority wins. Majority wins. But as I say, you are going to see who the majority is and ultimately three years hence, if your counselor is one of the ones who says, no, I I don't think that I should be capped on what I should be able to spend, I need to spend more. You can remember that and you can, if, if that's something that bothers you because it's cutting into your pocketbook, you can make a little note of that and put it on a little piece of paper on your fridge and go, yeah, that person, that person wanted more of my money and thinks they could spend it better than I can. We'll see.
0: All right. There's the stick of note for the fridge right there. All right. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton spectator. Have a good one, Scott. Have a good one, Scott. You too.
7: Thanks for listening
0: to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpayer and customer, to have the last word. This one from Barb, who has quoted former Liberal MP Catherine McKenna in a tweet. Scott, remember this. Catherine McKenna, quote, if you actually say it louder we've learned in the house of commons if you repeat it if you say it louder and if that's your talking point people will totally believe it especially if they nod their heads keep right except to pass